We sometimes uh, think of heaven, rightly so, as that place where finally the scary will be taken out of life, right? Uh, in fact, it's one of the things we long for about heaven, that place where someday finally the scary will be taken out of life. We have the image in, in the prophets in the Old Testament of the lion and the lamb laying down together. We can picture something like this video of just beautiful animals that usually are sort of at each other's throats now playing together. Revelation, in one of the most beautiful passages of the Bible, talks about no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death. And that is one of the things we long for, of course. But I wonder this morning, uh, and we can wonder together, if that's all there is to heaven. I mean, after we finally get the scary out of life, And maybe it's going to take a while to adjust to that because we are so used to life being full of the scary, right? The painful and and the sorrowful. But once we finally get used to that, maybe it'll take a year, maybe it'll take 500, maybe 5,000 to finally be able to breathe and say, here is life with none of the bad stuff. Eventually, though, don't you think we get used to it? Will there be then anything that goes beyond all the stuff that's not there? In other words, if the scary is gone, so what comes next? Now, one of the things, and it's a little strange to talk about it this morning because after we've heard this harp, I actually might be okay if all that we do ever for eternity is play a harp. If if I learn to play like that, Tasha, then I will be okay. I don't know where she went. Uh, I'll be okay with, uh, you know, this for eternity. And yet, I would imagine, even for Tasha, probably spends a lot of time with this harp as a good musician, there probably is still life outside of the harp, I would imagine, right? Um, and yet sometimes, somehow, as, as humans we love to do this, we, we get this one piece that, hey, in heaven we'll get a harp, and then we take it and we just kind of run with it, right? And now what do we have? The cartoon version of heaven is, well, uh, if you saw a picture with clouds and a guy with a harp, what do you think? Oh, they're in heaven. There's a, a really good book by um, an Adventist author, David Smith, who's right now, he's the president at Union College, but he writes a, a wonderful book about heaven. And in it, at the beginning, he, he pokes a little fun at this idea. Um, because we realize that sometimes we, this gets into our mind and we begin to start wondering about heaven. He says, you know, imagine if, if really the harp and the cloud were the only thing we do. Our, our schedule of daily activities might look a little like this. 7 a.m. breakfast, which is manna and selected fruit of the month, whatever is in season. Um, 8 a.m. group harp lesson in the temple courtyard. If I can do that, then I'm good with that. 9.30, we gather for the angel harp concert. Still beautiful, I'm sure. Uh, 11 a.m., now we go off individually for instrument practice, which happens to be the harp. At noon, we have lunch. At 1 p.m., we have free period, which David Smith imagined means we're standing around in white ankle-length robes, sitting beside tame lions, and shielding our eyes from the glare of all those golden roads that just seem to be everywhere. 2 p.m., arts and crafts, which uh, primarily consists of stringing and retuning our harps. (laughs) 3 o'clock p.m. is the second half of the wonderful, I'm sure, angel harp concert. (laughs) 5 p.m. is a banquet, um, which has some beautiful music in the background, harp music. And then he reminds us, from 6 p.m. to 7 a.m., is a heart playing marathon. Because remember, there's no night. So from 6 to get back around to 7, we're just 
you know, so eventually maybe we've taken the harp idea and the cloud idea a little too far. And the problem is, is I wonder if somehow when we, we start with what's not going to be there, what we're missing from heaven, wonderful, thank God, literally thank God that there will be no more of those things that we'll be missing from heaven. But then I think sometimes we've lost our imagination as we begin to think of, okay, so now what? After, you know, the, the initial beauty sinks in, then what do we do for eternity? Uh, what about those things in this life that have brought us so much real and genuine joy? Not the bad stuff that, you know, sometimes we... But the good stuff of this life that has brought us so much joy that surely God has blessed us. With. Will those things be missing from heaven? And if they are, will we miss them in heaven? What's going to be missing? The question, I, one way I would put it, is what, what about uh, a few things like, um, well, that we went over the heaven schedule. What about breakfast burritos, basketball, bicycles, books? Just a few, right? I mean, seriously, these are things. Uh, who likes a good breakfast burrito from Alberto's or Ilberto's or Roberto's or Iberto's, I believe they have? I will be disappointed <laughs> if one of the Berto brothers is not there making burritos in the morning for breakfast. Ser- one of the things we love, and I am amazed every time I think about it, God gave us this gift of taste. And the more cultures we add to that mix, the better. Because think of the amazing creativity people have put into helping us taste wonderful food. Well, what a beautiful thing. God has surely given us this. Will that be a part of our experience in heaven? If it's not, will we miss it? Basketball, baseball, whatever it is. Things that have, you know, when you sort of separate out the, the way competition gets to some of us, that aside, the beauty of athletic events and, and playing and bicycles, uh, my 5 a.m. Uh, date with the Tour de France every day for the next three weeks is uh, something I enjoy, and I enjoy riding it. Some of you like running or swimming, whatever it is. These are ways of using our body, and once in a while we stop, don't we, and think God gave us a gift of just this way our bodies, our bodies work, reading, learning, whatever it is, all these things. Certainly good things that we get genuine good joy from. What about these things in heaven? Or some of us, I think, ask often, what about our pets? What about animals in heaven? Probably most of us here have seen the following email that sort of went virally around email inboxes that started with this uh, back and forth between a couple churches, um, the Catholic Church and the Presbyterian Church. I know it's small, but I'll read it for you. Um, On the Catholic Church's sign outside, it says, all dogs go to heaven. Well, according to this email, and I hate to, well, I'll say that for the end. Uh, So across the street, probably the next day, the Presbyterians put up their sign, only humans go to heaven, read the Bible. (laughs) Thank you. Well, it was not done yet. Uh, God loves all his creatures, dogs included, said the Catholic Church. The Presbyterians shot back, well, dogs don't have souls, this is not open to debate. Well, maybe it is. Uh, Catholic dogs go to heaven. Presbyterian dogs, <laughs> they can go talk to their pastor about this. <laughs> Converting to Catholicism does not magically grant your dog a soul, they said. Uh, the, can you read it? Yes, free dog souls with conversion, say the Catholics. 
right? Uh, dogs are animals. They aren't, there aren't any rocks in heaven either. And finally, all rocks go to heaven, said the, <laughs> the Catholics. Some of you saw this. I hate to break it to you because I had to go way back in my inbox. I think Gene was one who sent it to me, and I've seen it in a few other places. It's one of those Internet things that is fake. This didn't actually happen, so I need to put that out there. You can create those very easily on the computer. Uh, but it was still a very fun thing. I wanted This one, some of the questions we're asking today are difficult. This one I can answer quite easily. Dogs, yes. Cats, no. Um, so... more seriously, this is Julian, who is my brother, and this is Dow, who is his best, best friend. Uh, I happened to be there when we found Dow, but then Julian moved um, away from where I was living, and he took Dow with him, and these guys are inseparable now. Uh, and some of you who are pet owners, dog lovers, cat lovers, fish, if you can, I don't know if you can get attached to fish, but um, whatever you are, some of you know that we as humans can become very, very attached uh, to our pets. And if you've lost a pet before, um, they, you know, it's, it's painful. It's real. And we're encouraged in counseling classes that, indeed, humans can form sometimes an even tighter bond with their pets than with humans. So it's a very real thing. My brother loves Dow. And, and so it makes me wonder if God, you know, creates us with relationships and everything, will those relationships be restored in heaven? I don't know. And then, of course, the ultimate question that we ask, and all of us have heard this one. You talk to uh, a lot of people, but especially say, I don't know, six. I think I was thinking about it when I was 16 or 17. Say, well, and you feel a little guilty saying this, but you realize you're saying, well, I, you know, I'm excited for Jesus to come. I know that's the right answer, but if he could wait till I get married, right? You remember this? If he could just hold off until. I get married because there's some things in life I just want to experience before I don't have any chance. And, of course, the assumption is then, well, once Jesus comes, that, that's it. And we miss, if you miss it, you miss your chance, and, and that's it. So what about families and marriages in heaven? These are interesting questions, and I'm interested in them. And I was asked to talk about them, so we're doing that today. But I want us to go and for, for our scripture this morning. If you have Bibles, take them out. And turn to Matthew chapter 22. So you know already, we're headed straight to the text that is always the one we think about when we ask, especially that last question, uh, what about marriage in heaven? We're going to look at Jesus talking about this, but we're also going here because I think we're going to get a principle in here that is going to help us with some of the other questions we're asking, especially as we, as we think about heaven uh, for a couple more weeks. Matthew chapter 22, go all the way to verse 23 is where we're going to start, but... A little background, Matthew right here is in the middle of telling us about a number of major confrontations Jesus is having here at the temple. It's towards the end of his life and his ministry. Uh, it's, things are getting intense. He's going to battle in, in words with the Pharisees a number of times. And in the midst of that come the Sadducees. We don't hear a ton about the Sadducees in the gospel uh, because Jesus actually has more interaction with the Pharisees probably because Jesus actually has more in common with the Pharisees than some of these other groups. But uh, regardless, the Sadducees were one of the more um, conservative of the Jewish um, sects. 
They're, they're made up mostly of the, the wealthier, we think, uh, made up mostly of wealthy landowning people. Um, that conservative mean they like to sort of preserve the status quo, the way things are, because the way things are was working quite well for them. Thank you very much. So we like uh, things to stay this way. One of the theological ideas that they were very resistant to, and even at time we'll see made fun of, was this idea that, that this belief that there would be a future resurrection. They didn't buy it. They couldn't, they couldn't wrap whatever it was. They, they didn't believe in it. For them, blessings from God or what, they might call salvation, simply meant in this life, find, you know, live long and prosper and have many children to carry your name on because the future of you was really in your generation. So no future life, but, but blessings from God come in. Live long, prosper, have many children to carry your name on. But no, no resurrection in the end. So important for us to remember this, and Matthew's going to remind us right at the beginning. So, verse 23 of Matthew 22. That same day, the Sadducees who, by the way, say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now, there were seven brothers, they said. Uh, um, there There were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother, as was the custom. The same thing happened to the second and the third brother right on down to the seventh. They all died and left the widow with no son. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Now, let's stop for a moment. You you get what they're asking, right? Old Testament law says it's so important for the generations we pass on, this is how you continue generation. You need a son that if a woman dies without having that son, or if a man dies without having a son that will pass on his name, then a brother's got to come in and step up and provide that for him on behalf of the brother. So this, of course, happened over and over, and it never worked. This, the original man never had that son that was going to carry on his name. It's a disaster for Old Testament times. Now, let me ask this. When the when the Sadducees come to Jesus with this question, is this a genuine question that's been keeping them up nights? <laughs> right? So what happens, you know, Jesus, when this poor married woman now, you know, we, we just, please help us with this. Do you, uh, is this a sincere question on their part? No, right? After all, they don't believe in the resurrection. What, in fact, what's their point here? What are they trying to do with Jesus? They're trying to trip him by showing the absurdity of this belief in resurrection. Hey, we all agree in Moses' law, they're saying, right? So Moses' law says, hey, you can have this situation where a woman now has been married seven different times. How in the world are you going to work out this thing in the resurrection if now you have a woman with seven husbands? We know that is not proper. So resurrection, it's absurd. That's what they're trying to say to Jesus. It's just not compatible with Moses' law, this idea of resurrection and a future life. So I think it's important, before we read Jesus' answer, let's remember, Jesus is not talking to, you know, this genuine, humble couple that's married and comes up and says, Jesus, please tell us, we've been wondering this, what is going to happen in the future? He's talking to some Sadducees who are trying to trick him and show the absurdity of the idea of resurrection, okay? So here, verse 29, Jesus replies to them this. Here's Jesus' answer. He replied, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. Strong words for the Sadducees. 
Verse 30. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Okay, let's stop again. By the way, uh, remember, do you know something else that the Sadducees don't believe in? Angels. Okay. So that's interesting. I wonder if there just might be a twinkle in Jesus' eye, or possibly an edge in his voice of sort of frustration as he's answering these Sadducees. He knows it's not a genuine question. He knows he's in the midst of trying to be trapped. And in fact, they are attacking this beautiful idea of resurrection. And so he answers their question by saying, well, in the life to come, people are actually going to be more like angels to the Sadducees who don't believe in angels. In other words, Jesus answers a very tricky question about something that the questioners don't even care about, that, something they don't even believe in, by referencing something else that they also don't believe in. You hear what Jesus is doing here. And it seems to me what Jesus is doing is he's trying to set aside this distracting, tricky, underhanded question that they're asking about untangling complicated human relationships. They're asking about that, and Jesus is setting that aside and saying, let's put that to the side and get to the heart of what you're actually talking about. Let's get to the heart of the matter. So Jesus continues. Here's where he goes. Verse 31, the heart of the matter. But about the resurrection of the dead, Sadducees. He's not going to avoid this question at all. Have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, Sadducees, but the living. And when the crowds heard Jesus answer, as often they were, they were astonished at his teaching. What has Jesus done here? Here's what Jesus is saying to, at the end of this exchange with his challengers. He knows they're not interested in the complicated parts of marital laws. They're actually being cynical about what? About the resurrection. About the life to come. Which was easy for them, being Sadducees at the top of the heap. They didn't didn't need a life to come, apparently. They're being cynical about that. So Jesus says to them, don't you remember what God said to, the, to Moses at the burning bush? He didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, rest their souls. Those were good guys. Jesus is saying, what God said to, to Moses is, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Death doesn't have the last words, Sadducees. God was saying to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yes, they're gone, but death does not have the last word, and they will be alive again, and I will be their God then. I am the God of the present. I am the God, not of the dead, but those who live and will live. God made a promise, a covenant to those people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God is always faithful and will keep his promises. Though you may die, you will live again. That's Jesus' point. That's what he really cares about. You don't know the scriptures, and you don't know what? The power of God. The power of God that was there at that burning bush when Jesus, when God said to Moses, I am 
the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I can rescue you now, and you will have a future. The God that was there with Jeremiah when he said to the people, yes, things are not good now, but I know the plans I have for you. Plans for your future. Plans for hope. That's Jesus' point. God's purpose has always been from the beginning for all creation to experience life with God. Life in all of its fullness. Life as God intended it to be from the beginning in creation. And God is faithful. And God is powerful, and he will see that promise through. That's what Jesus is trying to say. God is faithful, God is powerful, and you have hope and a future. That's his point. So, now, I haven't answered the question that's on our minds, right? What about marriage? It's important that we look at that text, because I think it is important to realize, because often this is our one text, and some comments from from Ellen White. This is our one text that we say, okay, so marriage is out. No, we're going to be like angels. No one will be given in marriage or, or anything. And that might be true. But it's also not the main thing Jesus is addressing. So I think we need to be humble as we look at that text. Now the question, what about marriage? Here's my answer. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know that we should be too confident when we start talking about the details of, of heaven. One of the things we have, one thing I do know is we do have some things in common with the Sadducees, and that is that we do have a way in our world of complicating our relationships, knowing. <laughs> we have a way of getting sort of a tangled web of relationships in our lives. And sometimes it just happens to us. Life complicates our relationships. Some of you have gone through a spouse and a loved one dying and then very naturally remarrying. Other of us have experienced divorce and remarriage, and suddenly we have complicated relationships in this life. So, how will God bring wholeness? I think this is the question. How will God bring wholeness and joy and complete joy to our new lives in heaven? I don't know. I've had to think about this, and in my own experience, I've kind of gone from well, I knew, well, the text Jesus says no marriage in heaven. And then I, you know, I learned about, okay, so maybe this is not really what Jesus is getting at here. And so I started thinking, well, you know, marriage is a wonderful thing, maybe in heaven. And then as this week as I had to think about it more, I thought, my family is a lot more complicated than it was for the first 20 years of my life. And as I imagine, you know, that joy of my, seeing my whole family together in heaven, I don't know what the ideal would be. Do, do you hear what I'm saying? Um, it's a painful thing to, to, to go through a divorce, and then you see the beauty of what God can do to bring new people into your life and find healing and everything. So now there are new people in my family that are just as wonderful and beloved. And I mean, what do, you, what do I want in heaven? You know, the new, the old, you know, the original. It's, and I, I, it sounds funny, I'm sure, but it's also very serious. I don't know, honestly. What the answer is, what is the beautiful thing that brings wholeness and healing? That's what heaven does. It brings wholeness and healing. What is it? And yet, the story that we read, Jesus, he almost had a way of saying to the Sadducees, okay, your tricky little detailed question, we're going to kind of put this aside, but we're going to say, hey, what you're missing is God is powerful. God keeps his promise to bring wholeness and healing to the whole world. God will work it out. God will find a way. And I think, actually, that that is where I want to sort of settle on questions like this. Marriage in heaven, I, 
Actually, I don't know. I mean, I hear what Jesus is saying. What Ellen White has said, so maybe things are complicated in the way we do it in life, and there will be something grander. Several authors I read said there will be something even more beautiful in which we have an entire global family in heaven. And so all of us will be joined together in beautiful, fulfilling relationships that we never dream on in this world. So I can, I can take that. But I also know that whatever God has in store is going to be beautiful and it will be healing and it will be wonderfully complete in its joy. And so I think actually the same thing goes for, for pets, for burritos, breakfast burritos, for bicycles and, and books. All these things stem from the, the emotions, the creativity, all those beautiful things that God put in us as humans. And remember what he said about it. Well, you know, I could have done better. Some, some of you shared that. Someone shared that in, in worship here a few weeks ago. No, he said, I think it was Chip. No, he said, it is very good. The way you taste that burrito, the way you can ride that bicycle, the way you bond with your pet, it's very good. So I imagine if it was very good in creation and God is putting together the new life, there must be some way that there is a connection to that. There is something that would be very good or even better and more complete in heaven. So maybe if you're looking for an answer, I might say, hey, if there are things that bring you genuine joy in this life and that's something you desire in heaven, go ahead and imagine it there because if it's not there, I don't think we'll miss it because God will have something even better and even more complete and even more full of joy in its place. Here's, I think here's the bottom line. There's this beautiful psalm that Pastor Julia shared with us at the beginning of worship. Psalm 16, verse 11. The psalmist says, very simply, In your presence there is fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forever." more. In your presence there is fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And I sometimes I think as humans, especially humans that are surrounded by the culture we have, we'd like someone to give us a bright, shiny brochure and list out all the fun stuff we're going to get to do and ride on animals and, you know, whatever your sort of like dream is, we want that brochure. Here's what heaven's going to be. It's going to be this great fantasy land and I want to be there. And yet when we stop and think about truly what is heaven, truly what is heaven, it's that place where in God's presence there is truly fullness of joy. At God's right hand, there are pleasures that we cannot imagine forevermore. Heaven is an invitation, not so much to, hey, you get a, a great mansion and all the ice cream you could ever eat. <laughs> Heaven is bigger than that. Heaven is bigger than that. Instead, it's an invitation that's so much more appealing and so much more irresistible. It's an invitation to life lived as it was always meant to be from the beginning. No more hunger, no more hurting, no more selfishness, no one left out, no suffering, no death. But not only what's missing and what's left behind from this world, but also what's there. Love always present, fully. Perfect, deep down joy. Companionship that's unimaginable. Learning, generosity, play that is truly free and full of happiness and joy. What God has in store is wonderful, wonderful joy. The joy that was intended for humanity. 
It's not something totally detached and foreign to this world. It's something that will affirm and reflect all the things we have in this world. In God's presence, there is fullness of joy. And at God's right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Whatever the details, whatever the intricacies of eternity with God, I want to be there. And I know it will be something that brings us more joy and happiness than we can ever imagine.